Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning again to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 down through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through verse 19. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now let us pray. Lord, thank you for the, the privilege we've had already this day to worship you. Thank you for these uh, hymns and thank you we can lift our hearts to a God that is glorious and praise you and adore thee and we thank you for that and I, I pray these moments that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to convey Holy Scripture in a way that is honoring to thee in a way that is pleasing to thee and in a way that truly represents its truth its character its intended meaning and also I would pray that you would work in each of our hearts and, and give us understanding, open our hearts to behold precious things out of your holy word that would um, help us in our walk with you in this earthly pilgrimage. I, I pray that the time would be honoring to thee and pleasing to thee, and I, I ask that it would truly be good for our, our souls as followers of the Most High God through your precious and holy Son. So we commit our time to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was debating a bit um, with no one but myself. Um, whether to uh, engage our minds in verses 15 through 19, because it's, uh, it's somewhat repetitious of what we have considered in, in recent weeks. But I've chosen to uh, interact with it this morning for a couple of reasons. One is that the initial author obviously was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, and therefore conveyed to the initial hearers what God wanted them to hear and therefore what was good for their souls. The recurring material had to have been good for their souls. So I came to the conclusion if, it was, if the repetition was good for the initial hearers, it must be good for you and I as well. And then secondly, the theme of the perseverance of the saints that we have been acting, uh, interacting with, it's still in view. And, and that theme is a perpetual concern in the living of the Christian life. It's of an ongoing concern while we're in this world. That, that is continuing in the faith is a spiritual activity of soul that we all must continually be engaged in while we're involved in this earthly pilgrimage. And then the pursuits that, that have an affinity with it or are closely connected with that practice of soul 
we have to do those also until we depart and be with Christ. For example, someone at a particular point in time will retire from a line of employment, but you can never retire from working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, one might decide I need to take a little time off from my current job, but you, you can never take time off from hungry and thirsting for righteousness. You can never take time off from seeking those things above. And so, so persevering in, in the faith and other activities of the soul that have an affinity with it, there are continual practice of the spiritual life all the time while we are in this world. And verse 14 that we considered last Lord's Day clearly brings out this uh, theme of perseverance. Um, it, it reads, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And then the following verses, verses 15 to 19, constitute what could be thought of as somewhat of a history lesson, um, helpful in, in terms of applying this reality, helping us in, in knowing how to persevere in the faith. It's, it's a part of a the section that showcases the unbelief of the wilderness generation. And as we noted, uh, their failure to believe God is the reason why they did not enter his rest. Um, and, and it's recorded certainly for our own benefit um, and, and what we need to learn here is to understand what they were doing, but not emulate them, not to be like them. So we'll move our way through, the, through these verses by means of four considerations. Uh, the first one is, is positive, but second, the, the second, third, and fourth are a bit negative. But again, it's under this, this overall rubric of persevering in the faith, and I, I hope it's helpful in that particular area. So in the first place, I would have you notice uh, instruction from God about responding to his word. Instruction from God about how we would respond to his word. Verse uh, 15 says, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they pro provoked me. This uh, it repeats a quote from Psalm 95 verses 7 and 8. Peter O'Brien wrote the lesson to be drawn from the wilderness narrative, namely the encouragement uh, to, to persevere. And in the, in the flow of thought, verse 15 especially summarizes what has gone on before. It summarizes verses 12, 13, and 14, as one commentator put it, with today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author would impress his message upon his hearers by providing a final memorable summary of the exhortation, verses 12 through 14. But it also looks ahead to what follows. As one put it, this verse is both a summary reminder of what has gone before and an introduction to what follows. Now, as for the text itself, the language uh, conveys a, a sense of urgency. When you just read the verse and, and you see a word like, you know, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, it conveys a sense of immediacy that you need to immediately respond to that. Um, how we should respond to the voice of God. Uh, Gareth Cockerill wrote his introductory phrase, while it is being said, while it is being said, underscores the, the urgency created by the present time of opportunity. While God is speaking today, and just kind of underscores and heightens that point. Uh, William Lane wrote, the writer desired to show that Christians addressed uh, that what is written in the psalm, that's Psalm 95, has direct bearing upon their lives. It's, it's immediately relevant. And, and so under this heading, the, the most logical application, I believe, of hearing his voice, the, the way that we hear his voice now is through the scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, the most obvious application, I believe, that, that applies to how you and I respond to Holy Scripture. And, um, and let me suggest at least two ways under this heading how 
um, our relationship to how it relates to our relationship to God's word. And the first one, I'm drawing a little bit from the broader witness of Scripture. There should be a persuasion of the preciousness of God's word. Today, if you hear his voice, that's, that's God's word to us today. But our relationship to Scripture should be characterized by, by a preciousness, recognizing its, its excellency. Um, a mindset that's promoted in the text, um, this is a, a mindset that's promoted in the text that would especially bear in our relationship to the Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great text about the character of Scripture. Um, all Scripture is inspired by God, and therefore it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The nature of it being inspired means that it's valuable to us in these other ways. But when I, I'm, preciousness, I'm thinking especially of a term like, of a verse like Psalm 119.97. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, uh, I, I think, brings it out well. He says, Dear friends, we must buy truth, even if the price is ever so dear. Every parcel of truth is precious as the filings of gold. We must neither live with it or, excuse, excuse me, we must either live with it or die for it. As Ruth said to Naomi, may gracious spirits say, where truth goes, I will go. And where truth lodges, I will lodge. And nothing but death shall part me and truth. A man may lawfully sell his house, land, and jewels, but truth exceeds all prices and must not be sold. It is our heritage and joy. Our forefathers have bought truth with their blood. We should be willing to lay down anything that we may purchase this precious pearl. It's worth more than the heavens and the earth. It will make men live happily, die comfortably, and reign eternally. He adds, in seeking truth, remember, it's not hasty reading, but serious meditation upon holy and heavenly truths that make them sweet and profitable to the soul. It's not the bee's brief touch of the flower, but her abiding upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It's not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Secondly, in terms of our relationship with the, the scripture, I, I believe this text brings out the priority of the present, the priority of the present or the immediacy. Or the immediacy. As we noted, the, the import of the text conveys this sense of um, urgency today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And this is true in, in, in a couple of ways. It's true as it relates to salvation and, and the need for people to respond to the gospel without to, to delay. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear the word of God, Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now is the only time that we are assured of being able to seek the Lord. So Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So now is the time of salvation. In Acts 16.29, the Philippian jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. In a sense here, it's not, you know, go home and think about it for a while, but, but rather right now do what is to the eternal benefit of your soul. In Acts 2.37, in the context of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and again, there's this sense of don't hesitate, but turn to Christ savingly this moment. And the same mindset of the, the priority of the present applies not only in terms of salvation, but sanctification. It applies to our own relationship to the scripture as well. There's a, an immediacy of response that, that should be true. Think about these words from our Lord. This is from Revelation chapter 3 with respect to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write the amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich and white garments, that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. So here you have the Lord of glory. He's seeking to lift them from this morass of, of lukewarmness. And the imagery here is, is, is very compelling. If somebody is knocking at the door, you, you feel a need. To, I've got to deal with this right now. Now, if somebody calls on your cell phone and you see their name come up, you might think, well, I can call them back later. But if somebody is knocking at the door, there's a sense of, I have to deal with this right now. And that's the thought here. Repent. And this is to believers. Repent now. There's a sense of immediacy and a sense of urgency. So it helps us to see this is the way that we are to respond to the word of God, to immediately respond to it, to immediately submit to it. Now, in verses 16, 17, and 18, that's verse 15. In verses 16, 17, and 18, that's going to constitute points 2, 3, and 4. And each of these verses is cast in a negative light, but I think it helps us to see what persevering in the faith is not. Um, and each verse is marked by a question, and also um, each verse brings out an aspect of unbelief that was displeasing to God, and therefore it precluded entrance into the promised land. They, they provoked God, then they sinned against God, and then they were disobedient to him. So secondly, we, we notice the provocation of God, the provocation of God. There is a, a question for who provoked him. Now we're moving on here to verse 16. There's a question for who provoked him when they had heard, and and. Uh, this, this term provoke, it's the verb form of the noun that is found right at the end of uh, verse 15. And the tense of the verb is a point or particular action in the past. So therefore, I'm persuaded it refers to the rebellion at Kadesh that we have considered. The King James translation is as in the provocation, or the New King James is as in the rebellion. And we've observed in this time that this time frame, the spies were sent into the land and they came back with the, the report. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, but the people were big and there was um, there was a, a negative response to that because comparatively speaking, we'll be like grasshoppers. Um, William Lane wrote in, in verse 16, the term provoked or to rebel carries forward the thought of rebellion expressed by the cognate noun rebellion in verse 15. It could conceivably refer to a number of provocations when Israel complained against the hardships of the pilgrimage in the desert. The context, however, supports an allusion to this rebellion at Kadesh. Let me just read a little bit from Numbers chapter 14 to refresh your memory here. 
Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. This is Numbers 14.1. And the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. Now then in verses 5 through 9, Joshua and Caleb appeal to the people, and that doesn't go well. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, uh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land that we passed through to spy out, it's an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, in response to that, the verse Numbers 14.10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And then the, the, end, the second part of verse 16 answers the question, who provoked him? And the answer is all those who came out of Egypt and led by Moses. Now, in this connection, let me make a couple of observations. Number one, this was a majority revolt against the being of God and his will for the people. Did not all those who came out of Egypt. Numbers 14.2 says, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, that would, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Numbers 14.10, All the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Secondly, it, it's a culpable or a blameworthy rebellion. It was not justifiable. It was a rebellion against the greatest amount of light. Notice the text says, when they had heard. Uh, the ones who provoked him are those who had listened, those who had heard. One puts it, they had heard God's promise that he would bring them into the promised rest. The concessive particle, although they had heard, emphasizes the culpability of their disobedience. They refused to heed Caleb's warning and rebelled against God. So it was culpable because they had, they had seen so much demonstration of God's power firsthand. William Lane wrote, the stress falls on the fact that they all who left Egypt had heard God's voice and all had rebelled even though they witnessed the redemptive power of God. Now we can add here by way of application, uh, number one, um, the effect of truth on the unsaved often provokes them. The effect of, of the truth on the unsaved Often, not always, but often it provokes them. You might recall Stephen in Acts chapter 7 conveyed the truth of the gospel. Um, in that particular sermon, he accurately depicts Israel's history. He accurately indicted his hearers, and um, it provoked them. Here's how they responded, verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit... He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they went on stoning him. Now just one more, it's a classic example of this, that the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel always 
but sometimes provokes the anger and the ire of people. This is from Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It's the example of our Lord himself where he came to Nazareth. We've been brought up, and it was his custom. He entered the, the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book and gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And verse 22 says, All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Then verse 28 all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So the, the truth provoked them. And what arrests our attention here is they, they were all speaking well of him. And then comes the truth. And they all were enraged against him. Now, it's true that um, people can dislike us maybe more for our disposition than our position, but nevertheless, you can be as nice and as kind as you want to be, and often the truth of the gospel incites anger on the parts of those who hear it, just reveals what is in their heart. Well, then secondly, this is a second point of application under main point two. Secondly, and it's, it's kind of a sorrowful point, uh, the greatest of religious advantage is no guarantee of conversion and salvation. The greatest of religious advantage, that's no guarantee of true salvation. I wish that was not the case. Um, but when you read about this, it's hard to imagine any greater advantage that firsthand, firsthand, they'd seen the, the power of God. They'd been taught by Moses. They had the example of Joshua and Caleb, this, this amazing, clear, unmistakable demonstration of God's power. Yet all who came out of Egypt provoked him by their, by their sin and their disobedience. Um, it's not a pleasant reality to consider, but it helps us to understand how people can, can have all the advantages you could possibly think of, but they don't repent, they don't respond to the gospel. Well, thirdly, is a bit more positive, and that is there is always, even in the worst of times, even in the darkest of times, there's always a true remnant. There is always a true people of God. The King James translation is interesting. It says, um, for some, when they had heard, did provoke. However, not all that came out of, of Egypt by Moses. That translation suggests um, 
that a, a minority rebelled, um, which clearly does not fit the biblical material, so uh, other translations do not follow suit. However, John Owen makes an observation here that I thought was, was very helpful. He says, in the most general and visible apostasies of the church, God still preserves a remnant unto himself to bear witness unto him and for him by their faith and obedience. So here you have this widespread rebe rebellion. You still have Moses. You still have Joshua. You still have Caleb. There, there's always a remnant. Um, in Sunday school, we read Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I'm sorry that I have made him, but not everybody. Verse 8, Noah found favor in his eyes. It, it fits in with the teaching of our Lord that, that many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Few. But some, a few, are on the narrow road that leads to life. Now, in the, in the next place, so in the second place, we see the provocation of the Lord in regard to these people. In verse 17, we come to a more positive point. We see the, that the wrath of God against them, or the hostility of God against them, or the anger of God against them. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Like the moment, at least in some cases, where you mention the wrath of God or the anger of God, um, that's a truth that a lot of people don't like. They're, they're fine to hear that God is a God of love, and he is, but many do not like the idea. They recoil against the idea of a God of wrath. However, it, it is a, a truth that is clearly revealed in Scripture. It is never to be downplayed. I'm getting a little bit off track, but not too much. Um, it's a truth that is never to be downplayed because you really can't understand the biblical gospel apart from the wrath of God. Because the central plea of the biblical gospel is be safe, right? be rescued, be delivered. And the answer to the question, from what? It's from the outpouring of the wrath of God against sin. That's what we're saved from. And, and the glory of the biblical gospel is it actually delivers from the reality of God's wrath against sin. The motivation for proclaiming the gospel and praying for salvation is that sinners would be rescued and delivered from the reality of God's wrath. Also, uh, you really can't understand the character of God rightly, I don't believe, apart from his wrath, because what are we talking about here except an expression or a display of his holiness? It, it is simply a manifestation of the holiness of the character of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou cannot look on wickedness with favor. Well, here I'll develop our thinking by um, six somewhat brief remarks. Uh, number one, first we see the fact of God's wrath. I mean, it's mentioned, verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? It's defined, on, it means to be wrathful, to be or become vehemently incensed and angered over some activity. Uh, you've read the Old Testament over and over again, and you've seen over and over again a phrase like, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Some form of that is found over and over in the Old Testament. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and, this, and his displays in the Old Testament of his wrath are, when you really think about it, they are, are stunning and they are sobering, consuming an entire city with fire, the earth opening up and swallowing sinners. I mean, God's response to sin in the Old Testament is clear and it's stunning. Secondly, the objects of this hostility here are the wilderness generation. Psalm 95.10 says, For 40 years... 
I loathe that generation. I mean, that's the response of God for 40 years to this generation. To loathe is to abhor. It's something that is repugnant. Um, so this is a reference to those who sinned at, at Kadesh Barnea. Um, this is before the 40 years. Numbers 14, 33, your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. They shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years. You shall know my opposition. Well, thirdly, and obviously is the duration of this hostility, for, was 40 years uh, one wrote, although God sustained them during the 40-year period, he sustained them, his wrath was unrelenting until the death of the last rebel. Each year was a reminder of their faithlessness and their forfeited blessing. Well, then in the fourth place, we have the proof or the demonstration of his wrath, and, and that's the rest of verse 17. Um, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness Numbers 14, 28 says, Say to them as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, I will surely do to you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, that have grumbled against me. And, and this idea of corpses falling in the wilderness, um, it's not just dying, but it's an accursed kind of death. Um, one wrote, the, the wilderness wandering of those who sinned did not find its end until their corpses fell, like those slaughtered in battle. Fallen corpses describe a, a, a death that's appropriate for apostates. Uh, Isaiah 66, 24 says, Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men whom have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Deuteronomy 28, 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them. You shall flee seven ways before them. You shall be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your carcasses shall be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. John Owen writes, he does not say they died but their carcasses fell, which intimates contempt and indignation, and so do the, the words denote in the story itself. Well, then, in the sixth place, the reason for this hostility is presented as the sin of man. The reason that their corpses fell in the wilderness, the reason for God's wrath, the reason for his anger, was the sin of man. Those who violated God's divine law. And I, I think that we can say there, by, in terms of application, that a mark of true spirituality is to be persuaded of the evil of sin. When we try to ask the question, well, so what? I, I would argue that a mark of true spirituality is to be persuaded not just of the fact of, of sin. I mean, most people are going to agree with that. But the evil of sin. You remember when, when Joseph was being pressed to, into a, an illicit relationship by Potiphar's wife, his response was, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? What some might not might even deem acceptable. He says, this would be a great evil. How could I do this and sin against God? That's how, that's how his mind was thinking. So we should remind ourselves, it, it grieves the Holy Sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And one help is to consider that this is the reason that Christ died on the cross. It was because of sin. As we sing occasionally in the hymnal, you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great here may view its nature rightly here its guilt may estimate he died on the cross to pay a, it was a penalty for sin it was an atoning death for sin the, the effect of his death was to turn away the wrath of God because of our sin that that he bared in his body John Owen says God is not displeased with anything in his people but sin 
Or sin is the only proper object of God's displeasure and the sinner for sin's sake. With whom was he displeased but with those who sinned or with them that sinned? Then, fourthly, we notice the resolution of God as it relates to sin. The resolution or the determination of God as it relates to sin. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? This is a quote from Psalm chapter 95 and verse 11. It's the same group of people in view that provoked him, but those, those who sinned and here, they were disobedient. That's the idea of a refusal to go along with. It fits the pattern of um, having a stubborn heart, being obstinate. It's another manifestation of the belief that is made reference to in verse 19. So we see here that God's response is a determination they would not enter his rest. To swear here is to take an oath. A definition would be to swear to swear or to promise solemnly, usually invoking a divine witness, which well, there'd be no need for that here, regarding your future acts or behavior, often including penalties for failure and the contents of an oath. So that the consequences of disobedience is that they would not enter his rest. Now, most narrowly, that refers to the promised land. It means they would not enter the land of Canaan. But it's very important to realize, as one, I think, very helpfully put it, when David is writing Psalm 95, Israel dwelt in the land of promise for many generations. They'd been there for a long time. And, and though he speaks to a people who dwell in Canaan, he nonetheless warns them not to fall under the Lord's oath. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The rest of which he speaks, therefore, it's not Canaan, but that which Canaan symbolized and foreshadowed the heavenly rest which remains to be entered by those who receive God's word. The promise of rest still was held out in David's day. In spite of the fact that they were in the land of Canaan, it was still the today of their opportunity and responsibility of entering God's rest. So the people, they still died in the promised land. They still sinned in the promised land. And this, this term enter is, is used in Matthew 5.20 of entering the kingdom of heaven or Mark 9.47 of entering the kingdom of God. So what, what verse 18 emphasizes um, what the disobedient forego. It emphasizes what the disobedient miss, what they don't experience, what they don't anticipate, what they cannot look forward to. Um, they, they, they only remain in the kingdom of darkness, but they can't look forward to enjoyment of the kingdom of light, which consists of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That They miss the eternity of being the object of God's gracious presence. Um, they don't enter because of unbelief. Now, this is in contrast uh, to Abraham, who, according to Hebrews 11, was a man marked not by disobedience, but by obedience. It says in verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And the keynote of his life was was not unbelief, but it was faith. Uh, verse 9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now, now, why did he do that? Why did he live in such a way? Well, the next verse says, He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is, he, he's anticipating entrance into God's future eternal rest is the, the heavenly city the holy city where, where God dwells among his people well, let's pray 
Father, we do thank you for the time together this morning, and I, I pray you would take these considerations and apply them to our own souls. And we, we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, and we know that is true, that by your grace and by your spirit, we would be unlike these people, that we would be people of obedience, not disobedience, people of faith, not those who rebel against you. Pray that you would help us to be men and women who love your law, who glory in it, who submit to it, who rejoice in it, who meditate in it. Pray that you would just take these considerations and help us in our, our pilgrimage. Um, may it be a help to us as we continue to trust you, as we would continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness and holiness. And, and might we pray and encourage one another in these pursuits for the good of our own soul. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.